All right. Welcome back to CFPs that stack. So Trent, un- unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you uh, to look at it, uh, couldn't couldn't join us for the podcast. And I think moving forward, it's just going to be me. So if you like the questions and the style that that I run with, it's going to be great. But uh, I'm spe- I'm joined today by a special guest and someone that really doesn't need an introduction, which is kind of wild as we were just talking before we recorded. Um, Thomas Kobelman. And for those living under a rock, Thomas is the co-founder of All Street Wealth. He's an Investopedia top 100 advisor, two times, I believe, right? Or is it three? Yep. Last Twice. year. Okay. Social media marketing guru, um, likes to get in uh, fights with someone that, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I just love the back and forth between you and Jarvis. But uh, anyways, he's involved with Wealth.com, which is an estate planning solution for advisors and clients. Uh, Thomas is doing a lot of stuff. So he's super bored. Um, Thomas, thanks for uh, joining me, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And the, the Jarvis thing's funny. I just feel like somebody has got to stand up and I, I don't <laughs> say anything mean to him. I just am like curious why he takes the route he takes. I, I feel like there's just, when you have a lot to give, sometimes just you know being the giver and not the downer is, is probably a better route. Yeah. I think it's pretty obvious for anyone that's paying attention, kind of like he's just painted himself in such a bad light and it ends up being something where you, you just lose a lot of respect for someone. And I think that's happened for tons of people. Um, you know, and it's funny. This. And I love his brother. His brother is like the nicest guy. It's so funny how <laughs> you can be like complete opposites. Yeah. Well, I know that you put a ton of content content out there for like our peers and have talked about, Hey, basically, you know, you got to up your social media game. Uh, I'm not going to rehash all the content because you've done webinars, you put out content, you obviously tweet a ton, you do office hours, but for someone that, that is interested, um, I want to let you plug, what are some of the best resources or spots where you would encourage them to check out other than just following you on Twitter? Yeah, I would obviously say Twitter first because that's where like all my best content is. Um, I have a podcast uh, called The Long Game. I think it's really the gear. I mean, the goal of it was really to be helpful to the people I'm trying to work with. So it's definitely had more of a tilt now to like high net worth, complex situations, equity comp business owners, that kind of stuff. Um, but I actually think it's a great resource for financial planners. Like I have so many financial planners reach out and be like, I get a lot of my education from you. It's helped me with my clients. So I think that it could be a value add there. And then we're launching a course, uh, myself, Trayton and Rachel Camp, who if anybody's on Twitter sees her as well, she's like definitely one of the best creators and it's going to be a hundred bucks. It's really geared to helping people get started as well as financial planners getting started too of, you know, I remember when I first started, I just wanted to learn about financial planning and I couldn't find any courses to help teach me about that as a financial advisor. Everything was geared about selling. And this is geared towards like all of the basics from emergency funds to savings and automation to budgeting to debt to, you know, estate planning. Um, but I would say those are like the three best places at this point. Awesome. Is uh, any CFP CE with uh, the course or is it just going to uh, be, hey, from an education standpoint? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we could probably try to figure that out, but that really wasn't phase one. I think Cody Garrett has a lot of that good stuff yep. nailed down. Our, our goal was really this to be for people who can't work with us. I mean, now my my firm has a $12,000 a year minimum for people in their 30s and 40s, which means it's inaccessible to you know 99% of people, but those people still want advice and they want something packaged that's going to take them, which our goal is, hey, all the things you need to learn and then how to create your own financial plan at the end. So I think most courses are like learn about investing or learn about debt. And it's not how do you bring all of this together to create your own financial plan. So the goal for us really is to help those type of people. I think it's just a second benefit that financial planners can learn that stuff at the same time. Yeah, sure. Got it. Okay. I wasn't thinking about it from a, from a you know, individual 
just going and learning and not being from an advisory perspective, but that makes sense where it can kind of, you know, accomplish two things. Yeah. I even think like, you know, like me, I started at a broker dealer, you know, you don't really learn very much. You need to learn the basics because you're probably going to be working with millennial or not millennials, probably Gen Z now. You need to learn all those foundational pieces. And so we wanted to make this where it's super accessible, like hundred bucks is obviously, I think anybody could probably end up affording that. And that's our waitlist fee. And then it'll become 150 once it actually launches. But again, I mean, I, I recorded 14 of the videos yesterday and that's about 45 minutes of just videos. My other, so we'll end up about an hour just of me talking, let alone with Trey and let alone Rachel. So that's a lot of content to get out for also, I think that price. Totally. And you mentioned it, you know, it's been fun to, to watch you basically blow up. And I feel like I, I knew you before you were famous, right? So it's one of those <laughs> things that's funny, but I can still remember you hadn't left your broker dealer. We'd connected at, you know, Starbucks, Lincoln Fishers, chatting through different things. And I would say one of the key things outside of just putting content, you've just been authentic. It's just been you. And so when people reach out to you, it's just like, okay, this is Thomas. Thomas is the same that you see on Twitter as when you interact, when you work with him as a, an advisor. But, you know, would you say that being authentic is what's helped you grow? Is there other things that have helped you grow? What What do you point to? I think I point to one, the stepping stone of joining Justin for a little bit. I think joining Justin, he um, really helped me think through things of, you know, here's the mistakes that I made and here's how to avoid them. Um, But then he also really let me be me. Like what I wanted to do in in the bet that I made, which, you know, my broker dealer, they're like, you you don't need social media. Like we've all built businesses without it. And I'm like, you built these businesses in the nineties, right. Or early two thousands when social media didn't exist. Like that's kind of a bad way to look at it. And they wouldn't let me do the things I wanted to do. And I said, I think I could build a better business through social. And, you know, I like to me, I, I go on Twitter and I learn from other people. I find real estate professionals. I find CPAs. I find, you know, just different people. And that's truly where I learn. And then I also realize, like, oh, I want to work with them, right? Like, I want that person to be my CPA. I want that person to be my lawyer because I get to know and vet them through their expertise. And then I also get to know them and their personality. And so my thought was, well, shouldn't I be able to do that through social? Like, I don't, I don't know why people think that that doesn't work in our space. And it's just because our space is archaic, which to me is actually a value add for me. I can stand out way easier in the financial advising space than anywhere because it's so far behind. But yeah, I think my goal on social was let me educate people for free as much as I possibly can about everything that they need to know so that when they hit whatever that pain point is and they need an advisor, there's nobody they would rather go to than the person that they know is a subject matter expert and is not asked for anything from them before. Because I think, you know, in our space, it's cold call, try to force your friends to work with you. And everybody comes in to me and they're like, I've never worked with anybody. People hound me. I love that you just educated for free. And I know that you know what you're talking about. And the funnel's easier, right? Like if I, if I get a referral, they don't know me. If they come in from social because they followed me for a long period of time, they know me. They feel like they know me really well. And so what's really important is when they come sit down at that meeting that I fit exactly the way that I show up on social. Because I think a lot of people are super inauthentic. And I think that that also leads to bad content. If you look at a lot of the content creators in our space, the way that they write is just so proper, right? Like they write in long, like terms that people don't understand. They write like it's straight out of the CFP textbook. And that isn't really relatable. I I basically try to speak in the exact same way I speak and my clients speak. And I think that's what ends up drawing people in is it feels like they're like, he would understand me. He could talk to me in a way that I get 
um, this could be a really good relationship. And I think that's like a really important starting point with content. Yeah. I love that. And I know you talked about your ideal client is kind of the, the 1% of those folks in their thirties and forties, but you know, real quick, how would you kind of articulate who is the ideal client for, for you and all street today? Yeah. So I, this all started with, I just wanted to work with people in the similar age range as me. So that's like, you know, late twenties to early forties, uh, typically business owners. I, I have two sides of this, but the most ideal client is somebody that is building a, a great business and they're going to plan to sell it down the line. Oftentimes the people that are coming into me, they're netting close to a million dollars a year. I have some that are well above that. I have some that are well below that, but their businesses are really big. And so they have really high net worths from that business. Um, I would say that's the most valuable for us because there's so much planning every year. Things are changing. They need a lot of help in the business. They need a lot of help on personal and they just don't really think about whether they should not have a financial planner. They should, they're like, this is a huge value add. I get the value of offloading these tasks. Um, and there's so much tax planning and estate planning that can be done there that has a huge impact. Um, and then the second is typically dual income households with equity comp. So a lot of times it's both are working, both have equity comp, and they also a lot of times have rentals as well, where again, there's just so much planning that needs to be done. They make, you know, probably at a minimum $500,000 a year of income, but a lot of them even more. And they just don't know what they don't know. And they also don't have a lot of time and they value having somebody to bounce ideas off of and somebody to take tasks off their plate and just for them to you know feel good about what they're doing. So definitely those two, I think over time, that's going to continue to change. I think eventually we'll probably price out those equity comp people. Uh, like I said, we're at 12,000 a year, but a lot of people fit into our $18,000 a year model. And the people who fit into that are ones who need like advanced business tax or estate planning, um, just because those get a lot more complex and the value add is a lot more beneficial. Um, so that's typically who we find that we do the best work for, but I'm building a team really around the business owner. So I'm bringing on an EA this next month. He's been doing tax filing and planning for 10 to hundred million revenue businesses. He's getting a series 66 right now. And I have a CFP on staff who's going to help train him for the first while. Um, and then they're both going to stay on so we can keep scaling because we're bringing on a minimum of three households a month when we have client reviews, sometimes four and less busy months. Um, and so I just want to keep scaling as fast as we can. Awesome. Love it. And so this is a, you know, a podcast that's all around basically educating the advisory space on the merits of, of why Bitcoin. I know you've been public about that you own Bitcoin. So I feel okay doxing you that you own it. Right. So yeah, usually if, if someone, um, you know, isn't very public about it, I'm never going to kind of talk about it, but how do you view it personally? You know, do you view it as part of a, a savings plan? Is it part of an asset allocation? Um, is it an investment for you? Is it money? Like how would you explain Bitcoin or how, how do you think about it today? Yeah, I actually love this question because I think of it in a lot of different ways. Like I still think we're trying to figure out overall what the role of Bitcoin is going to be, because even so, even if it's the greatest thing ever, but there's never any adoption, you know, is it something special? I don't know if there's a ton of adoption and it's a little bit less useful then it's beneficial. I mean, it's just this weird situation where we're still waiting to see what it is, but I personally believe in it. Like I've put out for a long time, I put education about it. I openly say that I invest in it and I basically view as a hedge, honestly. Like I, I think 
my personal belief is that Bitcoin is going to be here and it's going to be a lot more valuable in the future than it is today. And so I choose to invest a set allocation every single month into it. And I basically never stop. Um, to me, I almost view it as better gold. Like I think truly at the most basic principle and the easiest way to describe it is, you know, limited supply. People like limited supply. It's kind of the reason that we go to gold. And for me, that that's a, a good enough reason, but I also view it as a savings tool. I also view it as part of my investment portfolio. Um, so I hope that kind of helps answer the question. I still think it's something where I'm continuing to continuing to learn more about and refine and deepen my beliefs on it as we go. Sure. I think that that makes sense. I would, I would encourage that it's, it's a heck of a lot more than gold, but I think that's a great spot to think about it. It's interesting when I think about gold and advisors, a lot of advisors poo poo and kind of shit on gold at times about how it's, you know, this barbarous relic or it doesn't do anything. There's no cash flows. But if you look at it as a, you know, an allocation next to a, an equity portfolio, a lot of times actually just straight up owning gold is a lot better than bonds from a diversification and a performance perspective. And so, you know, I think Bitcoin, if it fails, it becomes digital gold. I think that's the, that's my, thought. that's the floor. I think it's the floor. And if, if that's the case, and I don't want to get into a bunch of price discussion on this, but that's probably half a million to $600,000 per Bitcoin type of numbers. And so, I mean, if that's failing today, it's somewhere around 30,000. That's not a bad, uh, uh, you know, compound annual growth rate for, for what it could do. And it would be, you know, somewhere between a 12 and $15 trillion asset. And today it's, you know, 580 billion. So there's, there's some growth and upside, even if it's just that, I think it's a heck of a lot more. Um, when you think about, you know, learning, what's the biggest question that you have right now with Bitcoin? What's the thing that you're like, I don't know about this. This is the part that keeps me like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if there really is much for me. Like personally, I mean, I've been investing for three straight years every single week on it. And as my income grows, I invest a higher dollar amount. I, I actually in 2020 moved out of all my bonds um, into Bitcoin when it was, you know, about 12,000. So felt good about that decision. I think, you know, I mean, relative to my income, I'm doing like at least 5% of my investment allocation a month to it. So I still view it as I want to have good sound investing principles. Like just like anything else, I wouldn't put 100% in any single thing. I mean, I guess maybe if it was one ETF, you could argue that, but like one business, one crypto, one property, like any of that to me is higher risk where I want to still have the same investment principles that I would have anywhere else. I think the one risk is always regulation, right? Like what if, you know, every country goes out and bans the use of Bitcoin or like you can't, um, none of the people that are helping work on Bitcoin can do it in, you know, the main countries. Like that, that's really, to me, the only concern I have. Do I think that's likely? Probably not. But other than that, like I just personally don't really see a world where Bitcoin is not higher in the future than it is today. And that's my personal belief. I think one of the hard parts for me is throwing my belief on clients. So like the approach that I've taken on Bitcoin is that I don't force anybody to do it. I don't throw it in model portfolios because most of my clients come in owning Bitcoin already, to be honest, like they've been doing it on their own. And I'm not a believer that I should be managing that for them. Um, 
in general like to believe have it on you know, cold storage wallet for themselves, continue to buy the right amount. And for some of my clients, we're actually diversifying out because I have some clients who like 99% of their net worth is Bitcoin. And again, same invest, sound investing principles. Like, you know, we moved some out and we bought a condo in cash for him. And then we're selling out and basically an opposite DCA plan where the goal is that we want to get less than 50% of his net worth in Bitcoin. But I realized that you're not going to do that today. You're not going to go sell everything today. So we decided together over five years, that's going to be our goal. And he still really believes in Bitcoin. So it's like, if you think Bitcoin will double in five years, you're still going to have the same, you know, multiple million dollars of Bitcoin, but now you're also going to have de-risked your portfolio and be in a spot. So I educate people who want to be educated on it. I help them think through the estate planning and the tax planning and, you know, the right ways to do it, but I don't throw it on anybody, but I have some clients and like, Hey, you're in a really good spot. It might be time to think about some other types of investments. You know, that could be real estate, could be Bitcoin, could be whatever, and kind of educate them and let them make the decisions. Some people believe in it strongly enough that like every single client should own it. And I just think there's a lot of people who don't quite understand and quite want to own yet. And I don't think I should be forcing anybody into any uncomfortable situations until they get to that point themselves through education. Yeah, I would say I agree. I don't think you can force it because ultimately I think as, as any advisor, like it's always their money and you have to treat it with respect and they're going to make the decision. I think advisors that are well-informed understand truly what Bitcoin is. Right. And I think that's a, that's a hard thing to put your finger on Like, how do you know you're truly informed? Right. Like that's nebulous. But if you run the numbers, if you look at any sort of, you know, asset allocation, you want to run sharp ratio, Sorrentino, like any of these different things that you want to look at a model allocation, like every single client, especially I would say in your wheelhouse of who you work with should have some Bitcoin allocation, especially if they're already, you know, ultra high net worth or, or high net worth folks, it's like, how do you preserve your purchasing power into the future? And I just had a tweet the other day. It's like, you know, if I'm going to build generational wealth, a portion of that has to be in Bitcoin. Because it's the one thing that's not going to bleed. If you have, you know, a bunch of property, um, property taxes and other things, that's so out of your control, even if it's paid off, you're still going to bleed on that. If you own a business, the the regulatory, you know, tax regime can change at any point. Bitcoin, you self-custody it. Who the hell cares what regulation says? I can hold through that the same way through other things like if you have self-custody bitcoin no one can touch that it is the you know definition of fu money you can take it anywhere in the world it's portable so like for someone that has significant amount of wealth and they want to at least preserve part of that to me bitcoin has to play a role in that and yeah. um i would I, say i, very I think rare. we see i think we see similar in that frame but i i get where you can't be like hey you know isaiah you have to own this today right i think it's yeah. a, a process of education and i would agree i think one of the biggest thing that is really tough is trying to ask someone to borrow your conviction, Thomas, or my conviction of like why they should own it. It's like they have to come to some of those conclusions themselves. And it's just kind of working through it to be educated. Yeah. So my big thing is honestly that like almost all my high net worth people coming in do own it already. Like they they already have the three to five percent, if yeah. not more. I think that's just really because interesting. They're too. Like, I want to divert because they are diversifying a lot. Like when you have that kind of wealth, they have individual investments. They typically have equity in their business or the business that they are working in. And a lot of these people that I that come in that are that high net worth. So you have the business owners, right? But then the other people are typically they're in some type of like um like they're they're at some startup that has gone really big and they're into like something on this like computer science side, right? They're in coding, they're in whatever. And so they already kind of have that interest where 
most of them have been investing in it for a while and whether they have start and stopped, they still have a, a somewhat decent allocation, um, which I've, I definitely found has been interesting, but they're not, their belief isn't like, I have to own this as the best thing. They're like, I think this is a good hedge to have and I could see it going either way. So I want to own part of it. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And I think the hard part is I don't believe any client should have any single investment personally. Like part of my brand, I think is I'm going to help you and I'm going to bring you the information and together we're going to come up with the best plan for you. So like I have a new client who's coming on that for their beliefs, they will never have debt. They've, they bought their house in cash. They will never have debt in any single way. And also their belief is like, they would rather have a high savings rate and they're super, I mean, they're 10 million net worth in their forties. They already could be retired, but they don't really want to take a lot of risk in their investments. My job is not actually to force them to leverage debt on their home or whatever, or to force them to invest in the market. Like if they want to use annuities and CDs and stuff, like we can examine and do that. Like, I'm not going to throw my biases. I'm going to help you know, educate them, take them through what makes them feel comfortable. And we're going to find the best solutions and the best plan for them in that situation. But do you think an annuity or a CD or bonds in general have risk, right? Like to me, yeah. if you frame it as risk, there's a heck of a lot more risk for that person that already has that kind of net worth if they own a zero allocation in Bitcoin, right? You could do kind of the 95% in cash, 5% in Bitcoin. You'd be better off than owning zero Bitcoin and doing equities and bonds or something, yeah. right? But I mean, you can run all kinds of numbers with that. So if you, so this person, 12 million net worth, they live off of $400,000 a year. They're in their forties. You know, if they said, Hey, you know, I would like to carve out half of my net worth that is in CDs and cash. And I want to put it into an annuity that guarantees me when I retire that I'll never have to think about money again. And then now I can take more risk. I'll say, okay, great. Like I honestly never have done annuities. I don't, it's not at all what I would do, but we can look through it and examine it. Yeah, there's risk that what if the company fails? So you definitely wouldn't want to use a bad company. But I think that sometimes safety in parts gives you the ability to take more risk in other parts. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's this perceived safety because it's like, what is what is safe, right? Like if I have a CD or I have fixed income and I have you know a higher inflation, and I think inflation is construed in a lot of different ways, but think of inflation as like monetary inflation. So the amount of new units coming on board, yes, a 10 million net worth, 12 million net worth, 20 million, whatever those are, right? You're going to have the ability to absorb a lot of that before it really affects your lifestyle, especially if you're living off of 400,000. To me, it's, you can insulate that today, solve for it and say, if this comes to fruition and we see something that devalues the dollars that you have, you want this offset and you can solve that with a really small allocation. And you're not adding any additional risk in this portfolio. Cause there are some people where, you know, come hell or high water, they're going to be fine regardless, but you know, you can insulate that today at a $30,000 Bitcoin price much easier than you can. If it Bitcoin price is half a million or a million dollars down the road and things have kind of kicked off. So that is interesting, but I, I think for a lot of people, they, they view risk in a way where it's this volatility risk of downside versus you know, hey, for years and years, it's like death by a thousand cuts by being too conservative or it's the YOLO side of risk. And it's like, there's a happy medium and it's all more position sizing than anything. Yeah, and, and thinking about the volatility risk is actually something that's super important in my practice because, you know, I met with somebody this last week who um, his business, let's say, is valued. He's a CEO. They're valued at about $400 million today. 
They took on a uh, hundred million in funding last year. Um, technically his net worth, let's call it $75 million. But to him, his liquid net worth is like five. And he's like, I have no idea where my business is going to go. I want to view this as my business is zero and I'm going to get zero in my financial planning. Okay, great. You know, we can do mm -hmm. that. Like we're still going to throw some of the equity of that business into different trusts um, to take advantage of the exemptions right now before they get cut in half. Like we still have to view them. But his thing is if I have 5 million in the market and it goes down 30%, then I feel like I'm in a, like I can't handle that. So they, a lot of these people come into me and they're in cash because they felt like they couldn't take that risk. And in all reality, you know, that most people view that risk wrong. The volatility, you know, volatility is a real thing, but it's only a real issue if you can't weather, you know, that bear market of one to two years. And I don't think many people have that education. So I think you're right. There's so many different parts of risk and people think the only risk is volatility. In all reality, like to me, volatility isn't the risk. It's part of the game that you're playing. It, it, it's, it's happened every single decade, right? Like there's, there's no period of time it didn't happen. You look even at years of good markets, there are periods of time where it was down 20% in that same given year. Um, but then there is this side here, right? That you're thinking of, of like, the risk of not owning Bitcoin is thinking about like, what if we have a currency that continues to get devalued, right? We keep spending more, we keep printing more. What if other countries stop using the dollar as, you know, the main currency for them, you know, you need some way to hedge that because that's a risk that people aren't thinking about. And, and I get that. And that's part of the reason I think why I invest in it. And I think also the one interesting thing about Bitcoin is there's a lot of people who really, really, really believe in Bitcoin. And, you know, they talk about, right, like the spot ETF and they're like, the spot ETF is not the solution. And I get that. But I also think there's a part of the world of people who are like, this is super complex, cold storage. I don't really want to do like, I have to go to these random sketchy sites. Like, I want to have an exposure to Bitcoin because I think I believe in the future of it without necessarily having a deep belief in the use case. And I think part of maybe accessibility and education around this is like people invest in things for appreciation all the time. Like, why are people buying Amazon and Apple? Oh, I think they're a great company. Could they be beat? Yes, but I think that they're still going to grow and it's a good investment. I think it's okay for people to invest in Bitcoin because they think it's going to grow over time without being like, the dollar is going to zero. This is the world reserve currency, like own it or you're going to be poor. I think it's okay for people to not have that deep belief. And I think that the more we have people who have that belief and push everybody out in the way of like a religion is actually not helpful. Yeah, I would, I would say for most people, yeah, you, if you had a conversation with me, I would explain, you know, why you need to own Bitcoin. And yeah, I, I, I probably fall on the side of being much more extreme and what I think likely happens in the future, but you don't have to necessarily hold that to, to say why you want to own Bitcoin. But I mean, for me, a lot of these high net worth, ultra high net worth people, there's some status to what they're doing. Right. And so if you want to maintain your status, you need to allocate to Bitcoin just on the off chance that, you know, this does actually appreciating turn into something that is, you know, like a global reserve currency. Like you talked about a hedge, like for them, it's not, changing their lifestyle, but it can still protect and preserve it into the future. The other thing, if you have a lot of clients that are doing a lot of amazing stuff, running businesses, things are super complex and the knowledge that they have is crazy. They can self-custody and there is, it's not that hard to write 24 words or 12 words down and, and take ownership and possession of that. They've, they've driven a car, they've started a business. I'm pretty sure they can figure that out. And I think that's where, you know, an advisor can come alongside and help educate and train because like you talked about, 
the way that you've positioned yourself in social media and these other things is as the expert that can help. And you can come alongside and say, hey, I think this makes sense. You own it, or maybe you want to own it. You want to learn more about it. Here's how to do it. And I think that's ultimately like the goal is for advisors. They already have the trusted relationship to be able to expand it and say, hey, this new asset class that is, you know, appreciating best performing asset class over the last decade, best thing since the you know beginning of 2020. And we've seen kind of this big regime shift. Like Bitcoin is this thing that can help actually, you know, grow your net worth alongside some of the other things. And it also balances it from a standpoint of being completely different. And it's a non-financial asset where most other investments that someone has, whether it's Apple stock, bonds, CDs, annuities, all these other things, they're all financial assets. So if there is a, you know, bigger financial issue, those are all assets that are all, you know, together, that they're all going to be impacted similarly. If there is, you know, something that is a, a bigger event that's out there, not saying that that is, has to be the base case as you talked about, but it is just one of those things where, you know, if there's 21 million Bitcoin, there's a hell of a lot more than that from a millionaire or, you know, ultra high net with folks. So if you want to preserve that, you probably should have an allocation because things can change. And as we've seen, um, there are times where there's supposed to be this like once in a generation experience, which was 2008, and then it happens again and it's happening quicker and quicker. And I think more people are going to wake up to that um, over time that the the current financial system has some flaws, has some issues, has some things that it's working through. And um, you wouldn't want all your assets there if you want to you know, maintain it. And for those that have businesses, that's super important. If they're raising venture capital and these other things where they have outside investors, those are going to be things that can change pretty quickly, um, ultimately. And so, yeah, I think the the person you talked about with 75 million, but has 5 million liquid, I think they're approaching it the right way, which is smart, even though they have a ton right out there um, of saying like, hey, this could all go away. And they're, they're approaching it the right way. And I love that actually mindset. Yeah, I, I think one thing that I think I get asked about, which I'm curious to hear from you on is, I think a lot of people say, uh, Bitcoin's an inflation hedge. So as, you know, more dollars are being printed. Shouldn't this be growing rapidly? And should it be, you know, not correlated to the market and following what the market is doing? How do you really answer that? Yeah. So uh, I would say there's a really good article that I would point to that Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge by Parker Lewis, but it, basically what Parker argues is that inflation actually is solved by Bitcoin, right? So the issue is the the money supply. So there's a, an Ed Yardini chart that um, tracks all central bank balance sheets. And so when you see it really is more of the idea of quantitative easing, which means more money in the system or quantitative tightening. So 2022, we saw quantitative tightening, money coming out of the system, right? And that's why risk assets did poorly, Bitcoin included. Bitcoin basically is, think of it as a sponge. It's going to soak up liquidity when it's out there. And so when these central banks and these governments decide that they're going to you know, ease monetary conditions, um, that's what makes Bitcoin run. That's what makes Bitcoin appreciate in price. But what that also does is when you have more monetary assets out there, it pumps up the the assets that that you and me and everyone wants. That's why homes are more expensive. That's why college tuition is more expensive. That's why businesses are more expensive. That's why valuations in the, the equity market are more expensive. All these different things happen because the monetary units that are being created, the easing, the you know lower lending standards, all these different things. Like we live in a credit-based economy. And so you talked about a client earlier that didn't want to you know, have any debt, which kudos to them. A lot of people like literally can't survive without it. And so the way that new money gets issued is it is from loans. It's from lending. There's no asset to back that it is, you know, created and you know, it's a liability to someone, but it's a, it's a, it's an asset on someone else's balance sheet for that bank. 
that they hope they can get paid back. And so what's happened is we've artificially suppressed interest rates for a long, long time. They've come down and now you finally have seen that start to shift and you see inflation come alongside it. But yeah, Bitcoin is not going to necessarily say, hey, CPI is rising, you know, Bitcoin's going up. And I think that's a flaw that that people have said. What Bitcoin is going to combat is monetary inflation, which we've seen for quite a while. But 2022 was a, a year where, you know, you saw the the reduction in the monetary units that are out there in the United States. Now it was a small reduction based on everything that has happened. But even this year in 2023, you've seen, hey, they've done the, you know, the the banking program with SVB and all the other stuff that happened. And so there's more, you know, units back in the system and that's helped stimulate. And you've seen Bitcoin I mean, Bitcoin's up 80% quietly. Um, so I would tell you like the CPI metric is the wrong metric to look at. I think most people would say that's a bunk metric. CPI doesn't account for what the world actually is feeling and, and, and looking at. So for most clients, I would say, think of Bitcoin as the, the offset to the monetary unit creation and keeping you know, lifestyles affordable because lifestyle affordability is not going down. So when inflation comes down, it's not necessarily saying that you're getting deflation. It's just the rate of increase is going up. It's still a stair step up. It's just maybe the step is smaller. It's yeah. like a, a person that's, you know, gaining weight. Well, they're gaining weight slower. Are they losing weight? No, they're just gaining weight slower. And I think that's the way to, to look at it. So CPI being 4% instead of 9%, it's like, yeah, it's slowing, but it's still an increase that's still compounding higher. And um, that's where you can see all the different charts. And some people will say, hey, that's un an unfair way to look at it. And I would just challenge that. Like, how? Because Starbucks is not all of a sudden going to, you know, cut back on the latte prices for us because, you know, inflation's coming down. That is now anchored higher. They're not going to bring that price back because they're just yeah, going to keep that to keep the margins. People always see that like housing slowed from 7% to 5%. They're like, why am I not seeing prices lower? And it's like, it's not actually that. It's just instead of going at 7%, it's growing at 5%, right? Like people mix up this like slowing of inflation with decreasing prices and they're vastly different things. I think it just shows that most people don't know how to interpret any of the news and, and what things are saying. But another question for you that comes up for me a lot too um, I feel like I'm turning into the host for a second. No, I was going to ask you what questions you had. So this is perfect. Um, is like one argument that a lot of people have is like, well, Bitcoin isn't actually good money. It's too slow. Not enough can be transferred at a time. And then on top of that, nobody, if, if it's going to grow over time, why would anybody trade their Bitcoin if they're going to think it's going to grow, right? Money, if you know it's valued more today than it's going to be in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, you're incentivized to do something with it or to spend it. But with Bitcoin, like you aren't, right? Like you don't actually want to spend your Bitcoin because you think it's going to be worth multiples of it down the line. You know, how do you answer that question? Yeah. So there's, there's two there. So the first one would be that mm -hmm. the Bitcoin is not good money. So I think if any metric that you look at, Hey, what is, what is Bitcoin? What is money? What it makes a good money? Um, if you have an abundance in money, the goods become scarce, right? If you have a scarcity in the money, then all of a sudden there's abundance in goods. And I think the cost of capital, so what helps running an economy, it's so skewed and so broken. That's why you see all these per perverse incentives and these weird things that are happening and why things feel funny and off for a lot of people. It's because like the, the measuring stick that we have is no longer the same. It's changing. And so it's really hard. And you can talk to your business owners. How do they plan their you know, businesses when they don't know the impacts of the, you know, the, the quantitative easing or tightening or all these different things where that plays with, you know, their projections out five years versus if you have something that is really, really consistent and sustainable, it's much easier to plan for the future. And I think that's something that I would, 
you know, encourage people on is, you know, if you have a, a yardstick that stays the same, it's a lot easier to build, you know, whatever it is that you're building versus, Hey, go build something. I'm going to change the the measuring stick the whole entire time. You're not going to come out with anything that's built. Well, it's going to be shoddy and all wrong angles and all kinds of issues. And, um, think of Bitcoin main chain. So layer one, right? Bitcoin layer one, similar to the settling of like a, a fed wire today. And so if anyone's close in a house, they know that takes forever. I know we sent a, fe- a, a wire at 9 a.m. It didn't get there till after six. We had to close the next day in our house. Like that took forever versus Bitcoin, you know, that clears and it's done within an hour with confirmations. So it's pretty easy to do that. And it costs a hell of a lot less. So a wire typically is what, $20, $25, you know, depending on where fees are, Bitcoin, maybe it's maybe a horrible, you know, high fee environments, 10 bucks, but usually it's like a dollar. So it's not a lot from that standpoint. And then to say like, how would it, you use it for everyday stuff? How do I go to Starbucks? How do I go to the restaurant? How do those other things? That's where, you know, Bitcoin scales, just like any money today scales, right? You have Fedwire and then it scales up and you have Visa and MasterCard that sits on top of all the banking system to make those interactions really quick. Same thing that Lightning does. Lightning is, you know, a, a two of two. So you take the Bitcoin from L1, you put it into to L2, and then you can zip all those payments around and then you settle back with one big transaction, similar to what happens in other places. So Lightning is what enables, you know, micropayments allows you to, to make the, the smaller purchases that get settled immediately. Um, and you have finality, which today with Visa and MasterCard, you can have chargebacks. There's a really great story of someone that flew to Miami, went to a tattoo parlor, got $7,500 worth of work, flew back to LA and said, Hey, I was never there. Um, even if there's video evidence, um, my credit card got stolen. That's not my, you know, that's not my stuff. And you know, who has to eat that cost, that small business. And so if you look at merchant processing fees right now, Visa MasterCard, they're going to take 3%, 2.7 plus 30 cents a swipe. Um, it, they're, they're kind of hanging out there as a middleman that's super profitable. Um, but that's on the backs of those businesses. And so as consumers, we get the rewards, we get part of the rewards. And so what Lightning enables is it can actually bring the cost down and you can just discount whatever services you are back to the consumer. And I think incentives drive everything. And that's where you'll see Bitcoin adoption happen more and more as this Lightning development happens. So lots of easy plug and play solutions. I think for your you know, business owner clients or anyone's business owner clients, to me, that's a great way. And there's a company called Oshi that's working on Bitcoin rewards that instead of getting coffee points or pizza points or whatever, you just can offer, hey, here's Bitcoin back. They don't redeem it. It just stays with the company. But it's an easy way to then allow them to spend that anywhere they want. I think the big thing there with using Bitcoin as money for everyday transactions is the tax regime we're in. RFK Jr., who's running for the Democratic presidency, has talked about removing capital gains. Um, it's cool. Bitcoiners get excited about that. Um, I think free and open capital gains on Bitcoin or in general. Yeah. Cap- no, capital gains on Bitcoin because okay. it is just money, right? Uh, like, yeah. you know, you don't have capital gains if you have euros or you know dollars and all those other things like that doesn't necessarily happen and bitcoin is legal tender in el salvador and according to a lot of the statutes in the united states any other legal tender in other countries should be legal tender here in the united states um but again i'm not going to go to the supreme court and fight to to make that happen i'm not going to spend the 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 money on that one but i think it's pretty wild that you have three presidential candidates talking about bitcoin and um that overton window is shifting right where it's normalizing and so we'll see Bitcoin adoption continue to happen. It's happened pretty damn fast, 2009 to today, how quickly it's it's scaled. But it's still early days. It's super, super early. And that's what I think the ultimate mission of kind of the idea of advice on Bitcoin and getting CE credit and educating advisors is it's still early. It's not too late. And, and if you work with business owners, I think there's a, a reason that they would want to hold Bitcoin as you know part of their you know savings because it allows them to lower the cost of things. And 
I think that's the other big thing is, you know, if you look at a house in 2015, it was 42 Bitcoin today at 17 for the median new home in the United States. So like Bitcoin is a store of value. It allows you to save the value you create and make life cheaper over time. Now, if I'm trying to pay my mortgage payment in six months, am I going to put it all in Bitcoin? Um, some people would. Um, most people call them crazy. Uh, I don't think that's what I would advocate for. But um, I think the conviction and what you want to hold Bitcoin for increases as you are more and more educated. And I think that's what you ultimately see with folks is as they own it, as they learn about it and they dig in, they'll know more and more about it. But yeah, Bitcoin, if you measure and look at what are the attributes of good money, it will be gold, it'll be fiat currency, dollars, other crypto assets, which um, to me you know, are, are not the story. It's, it's Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin does scale and it does allow you to, to make you know, those small payments. And um, there's plenty of throughput. You don't need a elastic supply of money to make an economy work. That's a, that's a myth. That is not necessarily true. There's lots of misinformation from that standpoint based on, you know, uh, economic policy that just doesn't make a lick of sense, but that's probably getting more into the weeds than we want to go today from that. Standpoint. Yeah. But I don't well, know if I answer all the questions, but those are well, some of the different thoughts of, of what's coming. One last question is, what do you think the future enhancements of Bitcoin are? What do I say that again? Sorry. What do you think like changes will be coming? Like, you know, there's obviously people trying to help develop and make Bitcoin better. What are those areas of improvement that are needed that you think will come? Yeah. So I think there's going to be continued, like you talked about, just the ease of use for taking self-custody. I don't think it's hard today. And I think it's kind of a cop out. But again, you know, there's going to be ways that are easier. I think the idea of multi-signature for, let's say, long-term savings. So you don't have the, oh, oh crap, my dog ate it and I lost this backup thing. Um, having multiple people be able to hold keys in different states, different jurisdictions to be able to hold your wealth to where no one can touch it, I think is is really great. And there's lots of solutions coming there. I think- And one interesting network, thing to, to point yep. there is, I, I think your point on like the- it, it's kind of a cop out that it, it's actually easier than people think. I think it it might be easier than people think, but I think it's still scary in your mind, right? Like if yeah, I lose it's personal my responsibility. In, yeah, if I lose my login to TD Ameritrade, I'm gonna figure out a solution, right? If I lose my login and I mess this up, or I lose my wallet and X, Y, and Z happens, like the fact that I could lose a ton of money is definitely scarier. It is a scarier situation for sure. Yeah, it, well, and and that's the thing that I think people need to come to grips with is it is. It is personal responsibility. You can actually hold your own money and you don't have to trust someone else. So you remove counterparty risk. You don't have to worry about waking up someday and having you know, a CNBC headline that XYZ financial institution went bust. You never have to worry about that because if you hold the keys to your Bitcoin, uh, it's going to be there come hell or high water. And so, yeah, if you take the responsibility to say, I'm going to write down these 12 or 24 words, or I'm going to use a multi-signature setup and I can have collaborative custody and have some other outside parties help me with holding one key and maybe hold two. So I have the, oh shit, backup moment, right? If I need it, there are lots of ways to do it. But if you can literally write down words and then put those words in a spot that are safe or put them in metal and store them somewhere and not touch them, you're good. That's all you have to do. Your phone can blow up. Um, the device, the little USB stick or whatever can get destroyed. You can always back that up. That's the one beautiful thing about Bitcoin. You can use any device that you want because it's interoperable. So if you have those words, you can back it up with any other device anywhere in the world. And so I think that's one thing that, you know, there is responsibility. But I think in a world that a lot of people have tried to push off responsibility for any decision, um, Bitcoin brings that back. And I think that's exciting for a lot of people. Um, and for some, it maybe it is scary. But I think, you know, baby steps. No one's going to go from, you know, a zero allocation to a 50% allocation 
overnight. I don't think that happens. I think it's, I'll buy a little bit, a whole little bit. Maybe I'm going to keep it on Extodia. Maybe I want to do a collaborative custody. And then over time, they're going to grow that allocation or it, it, the, the value goes up. Similar to what you talked about before. People are going to put, you know, the, the value that they create in different assets. And the one that appreciates the most is going to get the attention. So if I put a 1% allocation in Bitcoin, all of a sudden it's a four or 5% allocation. I'm like, man, that really grew. I want to learn more about that. I want to understand this better. And I think that's what will happen over time is people are going to just get sucked into the idea that the number going up. And I think that is the kind of the wrong thing to focus on, but we're all human. And it's like, hey, if this is growing my wealth, I'm going to zoom in on this thing. And I do believe that that happens. But yeah, I think with Bitcoin, there's going to be more scaling solutions. There's going to be things that allow Bitcoin to be used each and every day. I think the biggest thing that could happen would be the ability to yeah, repeal any sort of tax ramifications for it because it is just money. I think you would see a proliferation of Bitcoin usage there because I think a lot of people are kind of caught up with like, what's the tax ramifications? There's ways to solve that. There's ways to get into that more. We'll have some other conversations kind of more focused on that. But um, ultimately having a little bit more privacy, I think is, is another thing. So Bitcoin is synonymous, but if you give up your identity when you buy it, it is something that is tracked. Like it's not hard to track it. So I think when people talk about criminals using it and different things, um, yeah, if you, if you, um, there are ways to use Bitcoin privately, but it's not the default setting. And I think that's an important thing that could be better and you should have privacy And this idea that privacy is bad. I think is wrong because everyone deserves privacy and you should be able to selectively reveal things about yourself. And, you know, if anyone uses cash and goes and buys a hamburger, no one knows that someone did that. Why do they need to know they did that? You don't, you're just supporting a local business. So I think, you know, that idea is one that's important as well, but yeah, there's lots of, lots of things with, with Bitcoin development that's going to happen. I think you'll start to see more and more businesses allowing you to use Bitcoin, leverage Bitcoin for mortgages. I mean, that's already out there using it for, you know, being able to have Bitcoin on the Lightning Network have yield. So Bitcoin on the Lightning Network is the first thing ever that you don't have to give up custody of an asset to earn an income stream on. And I think that's a really, really interesting idea and thought process with um, Lightning and routing nodes and routing payments. Again, too much to get in here. Bitcoin mining continues to get more and more efficient and using and leveraging stranded resources, stranded energy. And so there's there's lots of different conversations going on there. But there is going to be a, a big boom in Bitcoin focused companies leveraging and using, you know, the technology that's there. So that's what yeah. I, I see in the future. It, it's funny, the mortgage one you talked about. So obviously I'm, I'm trying to go through and, and get a mortgage right now. And one of the places I talked to, they were like having me list out my assets. And they're like, you can't put your crypto. Yep. I was like, it's Bitcoin. They're like, yeah, we won't even look at it and count yep. it as a liquid asset. I'm like, I mean, I have a lot. Like I, I have quite a, you know, the average person's salary in Bitcoin, like I think that should be part of my liquid net worth that you evaluate this. And one other company was like, yeah, we'll look at that. But I was like, that's really interesting that you just say that it's not even an asset worth viewing. Yeah, it's because they don't really know or what it is and how to value it. And they look at it just as purely speculation, which that'll change over time. And um, I think, you know, by the end of the decade, it'll be very, very different. But again, that feels like a long time, but that would be, you know, Bitcoin being kind of 20 years old. Yeah, which is not that old um, from that yeah. standpoint. And um, anyways, yeah, this has been a fun conversation. I'm glad you asked some questions because I'm always mm -hmm. like wanting to hear things. Because I know like you're 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 pro Bitcoin, but you're not like you know beating the drum as much as maybe I am or some others. So it's just interesting to kind of see where you sit, conversations you have, how things interact, and being able to, to kind of answer and address those questions. Because yeah, advisors are going to be all over the spectrum as far as how much 
of a comfort level or where they're at. And so I think it's good to have different voices and, and folks come on. So I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. I This is a random plug, but recently I took the head of community role at wealth.com, which is a digital estate planning tool. And just this is a perfect fit for you. I mean, this is obviously for some of you advisors use with their clients, but they are really working on trying to be the ones to tackle the crypto estate planning inside of there. And they have a couple of key hires that they brought on that have not been announced that are going to lead the initiative of helping solve this because that is still a part, right? Like, I talk with clients like, does anybody else know that you have this Bitcoin? Like, no, like I'm not married. You know, there are things that need to be done to enhance some of the estate planning around it. Yep. I would agree. And it's, you can have the best security setup for Bitcoin that you never lose it. It's always there. But if no one else knows how to access it, um, it's really yeah. not worth worthwhile. So I think that is definitely an area that, that Bitcoiners want. And it's interesting that a lot of your ultra high net worth and high net worth clients come in with Bitcoin. Because I hear like, oh, Bitcoin's only for these these people that have no money. It's like, no, there's a lot of people with with wealth that are continuing to have, you know, greater and greater quantities of Bitcoin. And I've met, you know, baby boomers that have 25 Bitcoin, right? So there, there's people yeah. out there that that have a high net worth and have a lot of well, Bitcoin as well, and they want advice and guidance. So I think for advisors, like there's a there's a niche and there's a there's a there's a cohort of people that want advice and guidance on like estate planning and taxes and other financial planning, maybe not the investment management piece, and that's just Fine. such a, a role change for a lot of people. Yeah, it's funny. I was uh, at dinner with one of my buddy's dads and he's a CEO of a really solid business. He's tons of net worth. Like think, you know, renting private jets for travel, net, um, you know, wealthy. And he was telling me he has a 5% allocation to Bitcoin that he started to do in the last couple of years and how he was really excited about it and learning about it. So I don't think this cool. is something that, you know, only the youngest people have, but I, I do think that, you know, some of the younger people are more keen to it, but like, you know, I have 22 year olds reach out to me who are like, are you educating everybody about this? Like, you know, you have to be investing hundred percent in Bitcoin. I'm like, your belief is this is a little interesting here. Like you financial planning, isn't one investment, right? Like to think that, you know, I think every financial advisor should learn about it, but to think that that's the number one piece of learning, I think is a little getting ahead of ourselves. Like the, the average person still needs to figure out how to budget and how to save and how to invest a set amount of their income and, you know, the right insurances, this is a big, important thing to learn, but it shouldn't be like day one financial advisor. Number one thing that you have to learn is about any single investment in general. Yep. Yeah, no, I would agree. It plays a big role. It can help people. And again, I always go back to it helps make life more affordable and allows you to save the value that you created. So for helping clients achieve goals, I think Bitcoin fits perfectly with that. But I know we need to close um, outside of Twitter, anywhere else you want to hand off. I know that you talked about the course, wealth.com, anything else? No, that'd be out. Check, check out the podcast. I have a newsletter as well that you can find from my profile, but yeah, Twitter is probably the best place. Awesome. Thomas, this was great. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, it's awesome to see all the things that you're doing and, and accomplishing. So thank you for the time. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on.